Anschutz, Chapter 17. The next morning, there was a message on my phone from Gertie, Anschutz's daughter, my new senior citizen friend, saying she had terrible news and to please come by. I dutifully reported, still wearing my uniform, to the craft store after last formation ended. Her pretty granddaughter admitted me into the back room to wait for Gertie to return from Landstuhl. I sat down in the old woman's lair and slung my patrol cap over my knee. A copy of the Beckberg report lay on the table. It was the horrible post-English newspaper that never had anything important to say. What had happened in the woods had given the ridiculous paper its first real headline. A front-page photo showed yellow police tape wrapped around the trees of the familiar clearing. The article had a quote from some German forensics guy. He doubted the death was recent given the state of decomposition. The remains were to be taken back to Lahnstuhl Regional Medical Center for further study and possibly released to the German authorities. It said that a group of volunteers had found the body. The truth was it was a crew of guys sentenced to extra duty who were cleaning up trash in the woods who had found it. I had heard Jeffries and the other troublemakers talking about it in the chow hall the day after it was found. I wasn't sure what the MPs were doing in the woods the other night when I saw them poking through the trees with their flashlights. Perhaps they'd seen Anna again and decided to check it out. The same BS session I'd heard Jeffries talking in also mentioned something about how the suicidal Jenkins had left a loaded M16 on the floor of the arms room, but he chickened out and hanged himself instead. The army didn't want to stop and consider that someone had to have opened the arms room door after Jenkins' death. He was dead, so he could be blamed for everything, and the world kept right on turning, letting me escape that noose. The news article was two days old now, and in that time, Gertrude Anna Holtz, or Gertie, as she liked to be called, had become my best friend. I went to her craft shop every day after work. My buddies egged me on, thinking somehow I had something going on with the pretty granddaughter. I didn't tell them that I only nodded at that girl before going into the back room to talk forever with Gertie. The other day I gave Gertie the drawing of her mother, as well as an ID tag, but had been affixed to Anna while she was in holding at the clinic before her father came for her. A week before, I would have died, not having them in my possession, but after getting to know Gertie, it felt like it was the right thing to do. She held the ID tag, stroking the attached string for a long time, a thing I used to do only weeks ago, but it seemed like years ago, like something I'd done in a dream or when I was a much younger person. It almost felt good to have some distance on it. Now a very tired, very disheveled Gertie stormed into the back room after a trip to Lonsdale. She flitted around from the coffee maker to the cat bowl and spilled a bunch of its food on the rug, cursing to herself in German. I offered to help her, but she shooed me away. Where are my car keys? She snipped as she looked around the room. They're in your hand, I offered softly, so as not to offend her dignity. She raised the keys up to the light away from her face and peered over her glasses. She tossed them into the candy bowl of old cough drops and paper clips on the table with a disgusted sound. Oliver, I do not know how your army ever beat the fascist. She huffed as she collapsed in her chair. I have never seen so much uneducated bureaucracy in my whole life. It was worse than immigrating back to Germany. She began to pry at the lid of the Danish cookie tin with gnarled arthritic fingers. I handed her a tube of hit cookies, which I had brought for her. Oh, danke, she said, giving me a tired smile as she turned the tube of cookies upside down and tried to shake one out. I go to Lonstuhl and I tell them my mother passed away in the war and we never recovered the body. I lied, telling them my father had said she was buried in a makeshift cemetery near the airstrip after the bombings, and could I please see the remains they had uncovered. She dropped a cookie under the carpet, and Herzog, the gray cat, came thudding on fat paws right to it. He made a hungry crunching as he devoured his cookie. The private at the desk, he knows nothing. He gets his sergeant, and she says she can't show anything without written consent. I say I'm next of kin, and it goes on and on. I could understand if they say there's no point. The remains are too decomposed. 
but they seem much more worried about signatures from this person and that higher up. She was perspiring a little in the fall cold, and I rose to get her some coffee. I didn't want my one source of sanity to be getting all worked up. It's all bureaucracy and paperwork anymore. Everyone must cover their own britches. Well, that poor girl sits in some morgue in an American army hospital. I scrubbed the coffee mug clean with a cartoon cat on it in the little sink. I even brought this, she said, fishing something from her pocket. She held up a little plastic bag, sealed but apparently empty. It's some of my hair, she said, thrusting it at me. Sure enough, in the dim light I could see several strands of silver white hairs. I handed her a fresh mug of coffee and sat across from her on the old rocking chair that creaked uncomfortably under my frame. I read about it on the internet, that they can take DNA from hair and match it with descendants. I even explained it to that woman at the desk and tried to hand over the baggie, but she wouldn't take it. I swore to her that it would match. The thought of this eccentric, funny woman trying to explain DNA matching and giving some of her old white hair in a sandwich bag to an NCO who'd barely finished high school made me smile to myself. It just showed how something, albeit maybe a little unorthodox, but practical and potentially effective was at odds with a bureaucratic, regulation-heavy army which now held the remains of her loved one. I watched Gertie finally drink a noisy sip of coffee, still wearing an exhausted expression. How long would it be? Just that four-hour trip across the country to Landstill had worn her out. She was not in good health. They had shipped Anna up there under the pretense of having her examined, but I didn't doubt the truth was they didn't know what else to do with her. The army was more used to the recent dead, not the forensically challenged ones. Anna would lay in a box or a drawer or whatever up there, between more urgent corpses, the more recently departed, who by pressure plate or tripwire or cell phone signal had been blown up or burned or shot or in some cases even drowned. Bodies awaiting some final paper stamp before being repatriated to Des Moines or Saginaw or Picune and dress blues with a long black hearse well waxed. Decedents who even I had to admit had higher priority than the moldering bones of someone who only two people remembered. A girl with no apparent family or clergy or congressperson with a legal emotional right to claim her and decry the loss. Add in the German government's near-militaristic love of rules and regulations, and even if Anna was handed back to her countrymen, it still might be years before an aged woman could claim the last earthly remains of a mother she never knew, and see them buried, or burned, or treated with the last full measure of affection and respect. Anyway, wie waren dein Tag? Gertie asked. I frowned in surprise, wishing I could tell her I had done something important. But with Gertie, I told her the truth. Ich spielte Fußball mit meinen Freunden den ganzen Tag im Schnee, I tried. The words stumbled out clumsily. I played soccer with my friends the whole day in the snow. Part of Gertie's adoption of me included free, if not compulsory, German lessons, so I tried my best to speak. I was worried at first speaking the Teutonic tongue might drag me back to the nether regions of sanity, but it hadn't, as long as I spoke it to someone alive and attentive. You played football with your friends all day in the snow, she asked me, a little incredulous. I nodded. Sports dog, I lied. Mandatory, I lied again. We had been released after morning formation, and I had taken it upon myself to drag the tired, hungover kids from the barracks and play soccer in the snow with me. I wasn't about to be alone, and thus susceptible to the harbingers of the barracks. To my surprise, it had been fun, and after a while, as we tackled each other in the snow and roughhoused, it made me wonder if perhaps there was a life, a salvation beyond chasing the dead. Gertie shook her head sadly. The setting sun began to shoot its egg yolk rays through the leafless winter trees outside. She pulled an afghan off the back of the couch next to her and wrapped herself up in it, her coffee cup held like a prop on her knee. She was quiet tonight. No chatter, no stories, no more German lessons. We sat in the noiseless room until the sunlight died, and she fell asleep. I had already made up my mind. I'm going to get her for you, I whispered softly in the dark. 
I washed her coffee cup out, then kissed her on the forehead and left. I just wanted to thank you for listening. I hope that you like the story. Right now, this podcast is available on YouTube. It's available on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. So if you're not already listening to the story in your preferred format, please look at the links below and find what you need. If you go onto Facebook and do a search for Keystrokes Amid Cobwebs, you can find our Facebook page and learn more about the show and also potential future shows. So please get on there so we can become friends. And finally, I'm really looking for feedback. Do you like the story? Do you hate it? What are some things you enjoyed or things you would change? Um, If you can, please give me an email at keystrokesamidthecobwebs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you.